Okay, so the question is, could we say a little bit more about that God's primary desire is having morally perfect human beings? So, essentially, the, the suggestion is that if you have a morally perfect creator, so we assumed for the sake of the series that there is an omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect personal being who created the world, and then asked if there were such a being, what could follow from that? What, so to speak, could we uh, expect that being to be like? So the suggestion is, what would matter to such a being? What ultimately is the motivation for God to create the world? And on um, the Christian view, the suggestion is that God's ultimate motive in creating is to have other persons to relate to. And as a morally good being, the thing that he values the most is people, right? Most ethical systems that we would we accept would say that the thing that matters most is people, and so God also would value them the most. And so that would be the primary thing that he was most focused on, and it would be most proud of their potential to be good, since he also is perfect. So questions about the Old Testament, in particular in the Old Testament, there was a, a system of sacrifice of animals or of other sort of uh, objects, sometimes it was grain, um, as a basis for, or as a suggested basis for God to forgive them. So how does that tie in with Jesus' death and forgiveness? So this is ultimately a, comp- a fairly complicated question, and it's a good question. Ultimately, to answer this, you have to step out of the sort of pure philosophy realm because you're appealing to specific things that are laid out in the Hebrew Bible. So the suggestion is that in the Hebrew Bible, God was setting up a system for people to sort of foreshadow what he was going to ultimately do in Christ. And strictly speaking, um, in the Old Testament, the view was not that the sacrifice of the animals actually took away sin, right? That it was ultimately sort of the notion of covering the sin, and that it was ultimately only because of Christ's death that the Old Testament saints end up actually being forgiven, So it was sort of foreshadowing for people what was going to happen. It was training people to sort of be thinking in terms of, you've taken something from me, there has to be restoration given. And there was a huge emphasis in the Old Testament on the thing that was offered had to be flawless. It had to be perfect. You couldn't offer a, uh, a broken or a lame animal. You had to offer the best, right? It had to be the first, right? It had to be the, the sort of the best of the best to sort of emphasize that what was taken was perfection and that that only that was going to be adequate as an act of restitution. So it was ultimately setting up and foreshadowing all of the things that were going to be fulfilled or that were supposed to be fulfilled in Jesus' life and death. Okay, so the question was, um, going back to week one, if God is perfectly complete within himself as a triune being, right? So remember we had this argument that um, on the Christian view, God couldn't just be one person because part of being a person was existing in relationships, both one-on-one relationship and one-on-group relationships, which ultimately requires at least three persons to exist as a community. So the question is, if that's the case, why would there be any need for other persons? Why would God need to create, ultimately, us? Strictly speaking, God did not need to create us. I think the um, we overstate it if we say that God needed to. God, was, God did not need to. What follows from God being morally perfect and God being a community of loving persons is ultimately 
that while God is complete in that sense, in the sense that satisfies the, the definition of a person who is relational in a community way, but being complete does not mean that you still don't have desires for further things. So God, as a community and as a perfect community, would still want to look outside of itself. I didn't need to in the sense of we need to do this to complete ourselves, but more that we want to do this. We want to relate to other persons outside of ourselves, which, of course, would require creating them. And so I think that the argument would be more that we would ex- not that God needed to in the sense of God was incomplete in the sense of sort of somehow not internally sufficient, but more that God would want to do that. There are lots of things that we do, not because we need to, but because we want to or because we think they're good. A morally perfect being who was sufficient would ultimately only be motivated by things they thought were good to do. What could be better if you value persons than making more? Hmm. So the question is, how does the, the, the analogy with the nuclear family play out or the notion of the husband and wife have children not because they need it, because they, they want to? It's, I think that, strictly speaking, uh, I mean, in the Bible, the, the persons of the Trinity are, are all presented as, as masculine. And so it's not that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are a family who needs to have children. It would be that if there was any need, it would be that God is looking for a bride, right? That God, and we know that it is perfectly appropriate. Human Persons can be whole by being single. It's just not necessarily the best possible state, or at least it is a good thing for um, someone to have, for you to have someone else. Obviously, it's more complicated. It's not like, you know, Adam and God, because of course, Adam literally was alone in the sense there were also no other humans, um, so I think that what the Christian is claiming is that it's good for God to create and good for God to seek these out, not that God, so to speak, has to, because it is a traditional view that, that's, that God was not obligated to create it or that it was good for him to create. So the question is, how does, since I've emphasized the personal side, how does that play out with, uh, how does all this play out with creation? I'm not sure I have an answer that will be at all satisfactory at this, at this stage. What I, would, what I would say is I don't think that uh, merely saying that the thing that mattered most was persons means that there weren't other things that also were pretty important. Um, I think part of the Christian view is, uh, and sort of in our ethical system, is that persons matter more than objects or matter more than non-persons, and so I think we're, we're committed to that. But that doesn't mean that Objects aren't also incredibly valuable. Um, some of their value is connected to the fact that they create a stage for, uh, for humans. But as you said, it's also they also have value in and of themselves. Right? That, that it is good for there to be beautiful things, even if nobody sees them. Right? That it is good that there be such things. And so, ultimately... Um, I don't think that there's a, a simple way to answer that in, the, in this context, but certainly the notion of the Trinity reaching outside of itself 
um, we would probably say that um, God both wants to encounter things that are like him in the sense of persons and also things that are not like him, that are non-persons. And so God would have a desire to create non-persons. And that also God would want to become incarnate so that he could experience some of these non-person things, so to speak, on their terms, on their own terms, right? Be able to interact with them physically, And that in the evil that humans have done, we've unleashed destructive forces into that creation that have damaged it. And God would want to redeem that also and reverse these causal forces. So I think we could probably lay out a lot of this stuff in those terms also. Um, It just that would be a, you know, take another three weeks. So the question is how... Uh, how does the emphasis on God seeking moral perfection or having that as his primary desire tap into, for instance, other things that are very valuable, such as an artist who might seek out the, sort of the most beautiful thing? Um, or how does that tap into scriptural emphasis upon uh, love? What I would say is that the, my account of what moral goodness is, is love. And so when I, the, I take it that the Christian account of moral perfection is that Goodness equals love. And so I could have, if I wanted, you know, if we wanted to, we could go back and talk about love and put that in instead every place that I said moral goodness, just put perfectly loving. I chose not to do that because love is so easily misinterpreted by our culture that it would take sort of three, three lectures just to lay that out and explain how, that, how their view of love differed from their view. Um, I do think it's interesting, though, to... Could we reconstruct this just talking about beauty? I'm tempted to think we almost... We, I'm, all, I'm tempted to say that we could. I don't want to commit to that because I, I haven't thought out the implications, but that's an interesting thought. That Could we actually reconstruct it and say um, that we, we also robbed God of the perfectly beautiful creation and that in Jesus' life and death that there is a sense in which he was offering something that was perfectly beautiful back to God, although we'd have to offer a whole theory of beauty as to how that cashed out. But I think that would be interesting to do, and I think that I could see that making sense. I don't want to commit that that definitely will work, but my sort of initial reaction is that you probably could do that also. And so there might be another uh, of other values that we could throw in there as well and say that we robbed of justice, we loved of you know truth, we robbed of a whole bunch of things, um, all of which were restored through Jesus' sort of completely perfect, in every sense, life.